Hello and welcome everyone to our discussion today on workplace investigations. My name is Naomi Jameson and I'm joined by Rose Smith. We're both legal directors in the team at Doyle Clayton. So Rose, to kick us off, can you explain when should we be doing a workplace investigation? What are the circumstances in which this might arise? Yeah, absolutely. Um, workplace investigations are actually necessary in, in really quite a variety of situations. It can be part of a formal process or perhaps even um, dictated by a specific policy, or it can be something that's arranged ad hoc to deal with a particular issue as it arises. Thinking about those formal processes first, employees can raise grievances around the way in which they've been treated or their working conditions. And a good grievance policy will invariably require some degree of investigation of the concerns raised by the employee. And in some instances, this can be really straightforward, but actually in a lot of cases, it can come, become really quite complex. And there might be other processes which are triggered by what comes up in the investigation. So things like disciplinary processes or whistleblowing obligations as well. So they can branch off from that. And even if those complications don't arise, um, disciplinaries can um, and often do need to involve an investigation process as well. Um, and obviously disciplinaries, for those that don't know, are processes employers are being taken through um, to answer any concerns around, around allegations over their conduct. And during taking, taking employees through those kind of processes can lead to exposure for legal claims such as unfair dismissal, particularly if disciplinary sanctions are issued without an appropriate level of investigation having been completed. Now, again, this can be straightforward, um, but for example, uh, the uh, sending of an inappropriate email might require a very small level of investigation. You check if the email has been sent and you ask the employee for their comments on, on why they sent it. Um, so it's fairly conclusive. But more often than not, actually, disciplinary allegations are a lot more um, nuanced and detailed, and they're very likely to be contested. There may be a number of witnesses to the allegation who need to be interviewed, and therefore a detailed investigation process needs to take place. Investigation processes might also be needed under whistleblowing policies. Uh, if an employee or a worker has blown the whistle about some wrongdoing or suspected wrongdoing within the business, and there's often an obligation triggered that the employer needs to look into and establish whether this breach or wrongdoing has actually taken place. And this again can weave into the other processes, including disciplinary processes against those responsible for the wrongdoing or people linked to it. So a careful and clear investigation lies at the heart of understanding the extent and impact of problems raised within the business, be it by a grievance or be it by a whistleblowing process and being able to carefully unpick what those problems are and think about how they might be involved. On a sort of less specific basis, investigations can be used to address cultural concerns or other issues which don't fall into those like neatly prescribed uh, disciplinary grievance or whistleblowing policies. So for example, if there's a culture of blame, um, if there's a pro proactive intention to address diversity, uh, inclusion standards, or uh, a thorough investigation can help to identify the issues and become the first step in investigating them. So that's when investigations can come up. And Naomi, can you tell us why it might help to have someone external undertake that investigation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so appointing an external party to conduct a workplace investigation really helps to demonstrate independence. So it's easier for a critical employee or indeed a judge it gets mm. that far hopefully it doesn't um, but these things have a tendency to, to spiral so it's easier for the for the employee or for the judge to conclude that an investigation conducted by somebody within the business is partisan 
So putting an independent party's name to the investigation and indeed to the report which is compiled at the end of that investigation really helps to achieve that independence. Um, we've seen quite a lot of scenarios where an employee criticises the choice of an internal investigator. So let's say that an employee, let's call her Jane, raises a grievance about the actions of another employee and we're going to call him Robert. So as a result of this, the company has decided to conduct an investigation quite sensibly into Robert's alleged misconduct. Now, when Robert is told that the investigation is being carried out by somebody within the business, he might well complain about this and say it's not fully independent. And this is even more likely to be the case if it's somebody who has some kind of connection or history with Robert or indeed Jane. And if these kind of complaints arise, it can cause delays in the investigation because the company has to pause and decide what kind of action to take. So do they stick with the choice of investigator or should they switch? Um, and sort of in a best case scenario, really, this causes delays. But it can also undermine the veracity and the conclusions in the report, because in this case, Robert would say that any conclusions are actually tainted with bias. Um, and we, I recently dealt with um, an investigation that had been conducted by a senior employee, um, but the employee who was the subject of the allegations of misconduct resisted this so strongly that we were subsequently appointed to conduct a further comprehensive investigation. And this involved a lot of delay, it involved duplication of work, witnesses' memories had faded over time, and it also created the sense of being on the back foot because of the change of tack that the company had had to take. And all of this could have been avoided by appointing an external investigator at the outset. So a genuinely independent report, which is conducted by an independent third party, is going to do a better job of standing up to scrutiny if the matter goes to court. And if, hopefully, it doesn't go to court, it will strengthen the company's position in any negotiating or settlement negotiations because the company will be able to stand confidently by its own process and negotiate from that standpoint, obviously putting it in a much stronger position. Also, having a report with a, with a lawyer's name on it can show that the employer um, is taking a strong stance and that the issues are being addressed fully. Um, again, in our experience, this can be quite a powerful tool um, when negotiating with an employee on the other side. And we've dealt with investigations for SMEs as well as larger organisations. And it can be really helpful for SMEs in particular to appoint an independent investigator since a list of sort of potential internal candidates might be smaller because it's a smaller organisation. Um, and there will no doubt be a desire to direct their attention and time um, to the running of the business rather than this sort of very time consuming investigation. And in the same vein, an independent investigation also means that the company can keep its internal employees ring fenced in case there is any um, a wider process such as an appeal um, or a disciplinary process which follows. So the investigation is often the start of um, a, a series of internal processes and it may be sensible to keep some of those um, employees separate for those processes. Um, so Rose, can you explain to us um, what are the uh, parameters of an investigation? How, how would the company go about thinking about this question? Well, I think we've touched on the fact that investigations often have um, lots of different that they end up speaking to, and they really do have the potential to grow arms, legs, heads and even tails. <laughs> it can become really quite unwieldy, so it can be difficult um, to, to sort of keep an eye on how get a careful balance has to be struck between sticking to your original basis for the investigation and staying on track to 
uh, resolving and 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 looking into the issues that you've you've been asked to look into but not overlooking any issues that arise and are uncovered in the process of the investigation itself and particularly keeping in mind that processes could stem from an investigation so there is always the possibility <clears throat> that you uncover some wrongdoing that requires disciplinary action or action under safeguarding or, or whistleblowing processes so we think it's critical before you even start your investigation that you give very careful thought to what its purpose is going to be and how far reaching it should be. And it's really best to have a written document which sets out the parameters of the investigation and clearly and properly defines them so that the people or person investigating know what the extent of the investigation is. And we would call that document a term of reference or the terms of reference. So an investigator can keep going back to the terms of reference if they feel like the remit of what they're looking into is, is having a bit of mission creep. And they can keep going back to it to try and stay on track. Now, they may not have to be absolutely wedded to it and they may need to have some flexibility if something comes up that that has to, that, that galvanizes a bit of change to that. But it's a really good starting point. And actually when setting your terms of reference, it can be really helpful to consider, yes, what we need to investigate, but also what we've decided specifically is not part of the investigation in order to define what, what will be covered. So for example, if appropriate, um, an investigation might specify that what's being looked into is a particular failing of the business, but this is not a disciplinary and there's no intention to go to a process that would impose any kind of sanction on anyone. It's to deal with failings of the business that aren't going to be attributed to anyone's particular door. Again, something that might need to be revisited if there is a disciplinary matter that's uncovered, but something that can be at least your starting point. And ideally, obviously, the mission doesn't change and your parameters remain the same throughout the business. But, you know, as we've touched upon, investigations can really pull at threads that unravel all linked or overlapping issues which do also need to be investigated. And a good investigator, part of their job is going to be identifying where there are further issues and taking a view on whether they should form, form part of the current process or in fact they should be flagged as a separate issue that may need its own investigation or process or may need to be dealt with in a different in a different way so setting those parameters early on is really important because it focuses the mind on who should be interviewed and what the process of the investigation is going to be what needs to be searched for and uncovered um, and absolutely this is critical because failing to do so can cause even more delays um, it can cause uh, issues in gathering evidence and in particular the longer you leave it after an incident perhaps that has happened um, and you start interviewing people they can start to forget what they have experienced or seen and their evidence is not going to be as as reflective of, of the reality of the situation so as with all of these processes it's always best to avoid any undue delays so it's, it's good to take an upfront step to try and avoid that um, so turning back to you, Naomi, um, something that often comes up and that we're really often asked is if we're undertaking an investigation, should we be suspending the subjects of that investigation whilst we whilst we undertake the investigation? Yeah, this is this is a good question. Um, where there's an investigation to allegations of misconduct, it can be extremely tempting to suspend the accused straight away. But we would really recommend that you look before you leap. Now, case law tells us that suspending an employee, even if you do that on full pay, while there are allegations against them, can actually be quite risky. 
It might be unfair and it might undermine the whole fairness of any disciplinary sanction, like a warning that you might decide to ultimately impose or even a dismissal. And this is because, amongst other things, it might look as if the outcome of the disciplinary was predetermined from the outset. Now, the decision to suspend should be carefully balanced on the facts. It shouldn't be an automatic reaction. But the business will need to consider whether suspension is really necessary in the circumstances. What are the risks of not suspending? Is there a genuine risk to the business of keeping this person in day to day? Will the employee be able and likely to tamper with any evidence if we allow them to keep coming to work? And if so, why do you think that? And what about other staff? Could they be impacted by this person's presence at work? Are you expecting a glut of other grievances as a result of, of, of not suspending them? And also, are there alternatives to suspension which might um, achieve the desired aim, like asking that person to work from home? So at worst, if a suspension is entirely unfair, the company could hand the employee a claim for constructive unfair dismissal. So it really is very important to get this right um, as to whether or not to suspend. Yeah, absolutely. And Rose, another question that um, I think we've both seen come up quite a lot in terms of investigations is uh, whether the interviews can be kept confidential. Can you talk to this point for us, please? Yeah, absolutely. And you're exactly right. I mean, this comes up invariably. I'm not sure we've undertaken any investigations in which this hasn't <laughs> come up as a question, to be completely frank. I think partly right. because people want protecting and the employees ask for it. And partly because employers sometimes say we'd really like to protect the employees that we're interviewing. And so um, we, we, we'd like to keep it confidential. Uh, witnesses do get very nervous about giving information freely, which might get themselves or, or their colleagues or people that they work with in trouble, perhaps derail already potentially difficult relationships with them. And um, really is a, a very tricky subject. The difficulty here is that investigations, I won't say invariably, but very, very often do lead to follow up work and processes and businesses need to look back able to rely on what has been said and the evidence that they've gathered during that process so for example in relation to a disciplinary investigation um, matter if if proceedings of a disciplinary nature follow from an investigation this is particularly risky because any employee being taken through a disciplinary process is going to want to know the basis on which the allegations against them have been formed what evidence do we have to put those allegations to them? And clearly, that's going to be informed by the witness statements that have been given. And so it's going to be absolutely critical that that employee understands and can see those witness statements. Now, in reality, if we start to think about how we can protect that individual's identity, perhaps by anonymizing the evidence that's been given, that doesn't really advance our situation that often because if someone has, for example, been part of a conversation and gives their account of that conversation, it's pretty easy for the employee to then guess the identity of the person who's been interviewed as part of the investigation. So offering anonymity as a, as a sort of solution to this is a bit of a, um, a, a false friend and doesn't really advance our position here. So we would tend to advise that operating on the basis of that the identity um, of the interview will not be guaranteed as confidential is the way to go. Perhaps we can offer another way of comforting interviewees. So, for example, ensuring that their identity is shared to the minimum extent possible, perhaps issuing some kind of warning around uh, retaliation. It's probably already in policies, etc., but reiterating that and making clear perhaps that the subject of the disciplinary should not be contacting 
um, people interviewed as part of the investigation after, um, uh, while they go through the process and around the allegations that have been raised against them. But if there are, generally speaking, there's not going to be a basis on which we can rely on confidentiality in respect to those statements. Now, there may be some exceptions to this in relation to perhaps safeguarding issues or issues where there's a very, very severe risk of retaliation that, that could involve sort of violence and, and fisticuffs and that sort of thing. Um, but the reality is that you will have to consider that very carefully as and when it arises. does come up and has come up in a recent investigation at this firm is that sometimes a witness can quite merrily turn up and give their evidence and then change their mind when they realise the impact of what they have said. Um, quite understandably, getting perhaps cold feet about um, uh, saying the things that they have said. And sometimes they can say, well, actually, I, I no longer want you to use the evidence that you have gathered from me. And this is always a very nuanced point, and you have to think carefully about what has been promised to that employee in respect of confidentiality. Some employees will point to their data privacy protections in relation to this and perhaps say, well, I no longer consent to you using the personal data in that interview, and therefore you're not allowed to use the uh, interview and the content of the interview anymore because I've withdrawn that consent. And this is one reason why relying on consent in order to lawfully process data can be very difficult because if we rely on that consent and it's withdrawn, then it can create a difficulty. Really critical and as part of your, your planning for starting the investigation, you should be thinking carefully about the lawful basis for processing the data that you gather. And one would like to establish a lawful basis for processing that isn't based on consent so that, amongst other things, if an employee did change their mind about the processing of this data, they cannot um, Im immediately insist upon you deleting the evidence gathered or, or not relying upon it. And you still have a few options there around continuing to process it from a data privacy point of view. There's a separate consideration to that as to the duties that you owe that employee and why their opinion has changed and therefore what you might want to do uh, around uh, getting rid of the concerns that they might have, or at least minimising any concerns that they might have. And what about recording interviews? Because that's something that we come up quite a lot against, don't we? So staff or people who are being interviewed wanting to record um, record those meetings, those interviews. Yeah, absolutely. And again, something that, that has a big data privacy um, point to it. It's absolutely something that we see quite a lot. Um, as the business running the investigation, it's, it's going to be up to you to elect whether you're going to record the meetings or not. Um, this can be really helpful because obviously having a recording means that you've got an absolutely accurate representation of what has been said. And it can be helpful for then producing transcripts uh, if you don't have a live note taker, for example. Um, it's really important um, because obviously keeping careful records is going to be an absolutely critical part of a well-organised investigation. It can be something that you find stymies the employee who are employees who are being interviewed sort of freedom to speak, and they may be a little bit less inclined to be candid if you are recording. And it can be something that you think actually we'd like to um, have a bit more of a, a note taker's impression of what was said rather than a verbatim note, which which could actually end up being misconstrued. 
but generally speaking, it's an incredible tool that um, businesses might think about wanting to use. Again, as I, as I mentioned and touched on earlier, before you start recording any such meetings, you need to think about the data privacy rights of the individuals involved, particularly if you're going to be considering special category data. So, for example, in, rela in relation to health or criminal convictions. Um, and you'll need to have a think about whether your data privacy notice has already informed the individuals that you're interviewing as to what might happen and what might happen to the data that they provide in this in this um, interview and also whether there needs to be an additional notification around data for these particular investigations. Now, something that happens is recording from the other side of the mm. table, as it were, and it happens more and more often as smartphones become more and more um, capable. Um, often we are finding that interviewees are, are surreptitiously recording uh, interviews that, that are being being undertaken and that can really muddy the water because it means there's more than one official account of the meeting and that in and of itself even if they are uh, recordings of the same thing can give rise to discrepancies and it also means that there's a very strong likelihood in an investigation of this type that you've got highly sensitive clients or confidential information maybe even special category personal data of your other employees being discussed in a meeting that an employee then walks away with on their personal phone, which isn't secured in the way that that sort of personal data absolutely should be. So we would generally say it's it's entirely appropriate to tell interviewees that they shouldn't be recording the meeting. Make it clear up front. In some circumstances, you could even flag that recording it would could lead to a disciplinary matter. Um, but one small health warning to this would be there may be a reasonable adjustment to be made for some people with particular disabilities who might consider that, um, that that they will be able to process the interview better if they have access to a recording of it. That is something that perhaps could be worked out with them and still remaining with one single um, official recording of the of the of the um, of the interview. And the other thing is potentially in relation to someone who is speaking English perhaps as a second language or has any kind of hearing impediment, um, which might mean that having a recording would be much more helpful for them. But again, I think you want to be having a conversation with that person around how the recording takes place and ideally sticking to one official recording using whatever platform provides the most uh, useful uh, method for making sure understanding is, is, um, is as clear as it can be. That sort of, as much as I want to go into on the data privacy side of things. So Naomi, can you talk to us about an absolutely critical point on uh, investigations for us as lawyers. Do investigations benefit from legal advice privilege? Yeah, well, Rose, as you know, this is a question that comes up a lot when we're dealing with investigations, because um, we're thinking about if a lawyer is conducting an investigation, does that mean that the report that we ultimately produce is privileged, mm. which means that it's produced on a non-open uh, non basis, a non-disclosable basis? Because obviously, as lawyers, generally, we're giving advice, and that advice is subject to privilege which means that it's not disclosable um, and not to be shared with the third parties. Now, the short answer to this is that we generally conduct investigations on an open basis, on a non-privileged basis. And the reason for this is that the investigation's workings, the rationale, the report can be discussed openly to demonstrate that a proper and thorough process has been carried out. So it's showing your workings, really. And the next question to be asked is whether or not it's actually desirable to exert a legal privilege where an investigation is concerned. 
And this is really about striking the right balance because the sweet spot is being able to show your workings and the conclusions of the report, as well as taking advice on the wider risks and the strategy as needed. And this can be achieved by using a legal team to conduct the investigation. And the way we do this is that we have one lawyer conducting the investigation and compiling the report. And we have another lawyer who is the other side of an information barrier providing advice on the matter on a privileged basis. So in this way, companies can get the, both, the best of both worlds. Now, there might be some other benefits of having a lawyer conducting an investigation. Um, so without tooting our horns too much, um, <laughs> we're, we're generally pretty well placed to look at situations dispassionately, to draw together evidence and then provide a reasoned report while considering the commercial impact that all of this might have, because this is essentially the bread and butter of most of the, the jobs, most of the work that we carry out for our clients. And we're also very accustomed to thinking about helpful and practical recommendations that might uh, be helpful to mitigate the risk of claims from this incident and from future claims. And we can set these out as recommendations in the investigation report. So, for example, we might recommend some specific training to educate certain areas of the workforce um, and mitigate the risk of future sort of similar issues. And this obviously can save quite a lot of hassle um, and problems for the company in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. So that wraps up our sort of top seven questions around running workplace investigations. If you have any further questions, you can find our contact details below. We'd be delighted to assist uh, going forward. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank